This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Go to the Word today, and uh, we're in our series in the book of Romans. And man, we've got uh, quite a task ahead of us because we're going to go through chapters 9, 10, and 11 today because as I was praying uh, and asking God how to break this up, I couldn't find a good way to break this up. And so God just kind of gave me a theme throughout 9, 10, and 11. We are going to go through the whole thing, but I'm not going to park in in some areas that uh, I could traditionally park in just for the sake of uh, us going through this whole thing because we have to understand that when Paul wrote this, he wrote this all as one thought, as one letter. He didn't have chapter divisions and verse divisions. He didn't write all that stuff in there. That was added for our reference, right? So as we look at the Word of God, we need to look at it in context. And the only way that we can truly understand 9, 10, and 11 is to look at it in context. And that's uh, the, the whole of what he's saying. And Paul is addressing um, Israel, all right? And he's talking about what's going on with the, Israel, uh, with the Israelites and uh, those especially that are Christians. And we need to remember a few things about Paul before we get going today. Paul is a Jewish man, okay? We need to remember that. Paul is a Jewish man, but he has dual citizenship. He is a Roman citizen, and he's writing to the church in Rome, but he is a Jew. Now, the church in Rome is a blend of Jewish Christians and Roman Christians. Now, remember, the Jews grew up with a certain set of beliefs. They grew up with the Torah. They grew up with the law. They grew up understanding certain things about God. Matter of fact, God was trying to bring through their lineage the promised one, the Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ. The majority of the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So therefore, the Gentiles, those who were outside of the Jewish nationality, began to hear the message of the gospel, and they began to receive it freely. So now the church is made up of some believing Jews and it's made up of Gentiles. And so you've got these two very different backgrounds, these two very different ways of being grown up and brought up, very different value systems, people who grew up worshiping pagan idols and people who grew up uh, reading the Torah and memorizing scriptures, all right? And these two people are now in the same building, worshiping the same God, and they're both justified and they're made right in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus. But Paul is wanting to address in chapters 9, 10, and 11... This whole paradox between the uh, Israelites and their salvation and the Gentiles. So he very well understood the mindset of the Jewish people, and he needed to address their beliefs, their methods, and the way they grew up thinking. And it's kind of like a, a, a pair of glasses. Each one of us are handed a set of glasses. We're handed a, handed a set of lenses to be able to view our world through. And those glasses are shaped and made by our parents. They're made by life experiences that we have, both good things and bad things that happen to us. And when we put on these glasses, we see through our perspective. Everything we hear, everything we read gets filtered through our personal perspective. The thing that often happens in the church, especially concerning the Word of God, is that when we look through the lenses of our raising or the lenses of what we've come to believe and know as truth, and we see the Word of God that way, we can get very different interpretations because we look at the Word of God almost in a way that we want to validate what we already see and what we already think instead of looking at it for what it is. And that's a very dangerous thing to do because a lot of times people will look uh, for good ideas that they want to say or things that they want to believe or things that they want to know as truth, and then they'll go through the Bible and look up scriptures to try to back up their idea. 
Well, folks, that's backwards from the way God wants us to do things. Amen? He wants us to go to the source. The source is the Word. And when we go to the Word, we allow truth to be shown to us for what it is. So when we read the Bible, we need to see it for what it is, not what we want it to be, not what lenses we want to see it through. I was talking to my mother-in-law about this at breakfast this morning. We were, we were chatting about a certain doctrine that is often taught. And, and as we were talking about that, I said, you know, the reason that people believe that way is because they look for scriptures to validate those things because they want those things to be true. And so they create a false doctrine around a misunderstanding of proper context in scripture. So what I want to encourage everyone of us to do today is to take off our lenses of our perspective and let's see what is Paul saying to the Romans and then what is God saying to us today and not what we try to make God say, and so he's saying something that he really isn't saying. Amen? Can we do that? So that's what we need to do today, and the title of my message is Mercy, if you're taking notes, and today I pray that God shows you how deep his mercy is and how we can receive that mercy as recipients of that mercy, being able to give it freely, just as God has given it to each one of us. We're not tanks of mercy to where it just stops here, and we're just supposed to get as full of mercy and love and forgiveness as we can get, and it's all about us, and it's all for us. No, that's not God's desire for you and for me. God's desire for you and for me is to be conduits of his mercy and of his love. So not only are we recipients, not only are we tanks or containers of his love and of his mercy, but we also have a spout that goes the other way. And we're able to be a conduit to share that with others. The purpose of us receiving mercy is so God can be glorified. The only way God can be glorified is that it doesn't stop with me, but it continues on, right? So it has to keep flowing. That's how God is glorified through me receiving forgiveness. Now guess what I can do? Give forgiveness. When I receive mercy, what can I do now? I can give mercy. Amen? It's giving people not what they deserve, not what they've earned, but giving them grace because we have been recipients of grace. We're supposed to be that conduit. When my wife and I were in Milwaukee, uh, we went out for lunch and uh, at a nice restaurant just to get away from the hospital and grandma stayed with Josiah there uh, for a couple hours. And when we went out to lunch, I went to a restaurant and had one of the worst experiences of service that I had ever had. And I'm a big guy on service. I, I like to have good service, especially if I'm paying for expensive food. I mean, that's not too much to ask, right? But here at this restaurant, I had awful service, and I'm thinking, man, what in the world is going on? And one of the waitresses came by, and she said, your waiter is a new guy, and, you know, sorry, you know, he's, he's, he's just trying to figure things out. I was getting frustrated, and, you know, I'm already stressed out, lack of sleep, and I'm trying to enjoy this time with my wife that I just have a couple hours, you know, away from the hospital, and it's just not going that well for me. Well, when he brings us the check, and I'm filling out everything, God just drops it in my spirit that I'm supposed to give this guy a really good tip. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't think so. <laughs> and honestly, I wrestled with it as I was, was kind of thumbing through uh, the bills in my, in my pocket. I was going, man, I don't know. And I gave this guy one of the best tips I've ever given. I'm normally a pretty decent tipper. And I, I gave him like a huge tip because God dropped in my spirit that says, you're not supposed to give him what he earned or what he deserved because that's not what I gave you. You see, you and I didn't get what we earned. We didn't get what we deserved. We're not working off of some merit-based system in the eyes of God. No, we received Christ by faith. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? You see, and because of that, God was reminding me of His grace. My wife was reminding me of how much money I had, (laughs) which wasn't a lot. (laughs) 
But God was wanting to remind me of his grace, and she said, she said okay, you know, if, if, you know, my wife's like, I already understand grace. Don't tip the guy, you know, but anyways. No, I'm kidding. She didn't say that. She didn't say that. That's awful. She's not here. She's at home with Josiah. This is not going online, Carl. Scratch, edit. So, uh, but anyways, we need to not only be recipients of that mercy, but be givers of it. Amen. And that doesn't mean we give mercy when we think people deserve it or when we feel sorry for them. You see, compassion rose up in my heart for that guy that day in that restaurant. And, uh, you know, I think it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Amen? Amen. Isn't that what the Word says? That we see that it is actually His grace and His mercy that leads to life change when we see the truth in the Word of God, the truth that sets us free. And so when I understand the magnificence of what God has done for me and how undeserving that I am of it because I did nothing to qualify myself for it, Jesus did it all. It's all about him. And when I realize my desperate need for Jesus, I cling to the cross because that's where mercy flows. That's where grace flows. That's where forgiveness flows. That's where acceptance, that's where redemption and reconciliation to a holy and perfect God flows. Amen? And when I cling to that cross of Jesus Christ, it begins to break bondages and chains off of my life because I realize it's his freedom I'm now walking in. It's now a new identity with Christ that I am no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives within me. Amen, somebody. You see, the flow of Romans 9 and 10 is going to deal with a few different things, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the beliefs of Israel, and that's what he's dealing with here. Paul's trying to get them to understand uh, this unbelief of the majority of Israel. He's going to deal with this paradox. So there's a few things that he deals with here. Now, when we say Israel, what do we mean? Because there's a lot of different definitions of that. So let's go ahead and clarify. Some of these we can attach to Romans 9, 10, and 11 pretty easily. And you'll be able to do that on your own. Some of them, we don't know exactly which one is being referenced. But when we hear Israel, we automatically think of the nation, right? We automatically think of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Well, it goes back a little further with that. Uh, Israel is actually the name of the person, Jacob, or Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson. So, you know, Abraham, the father of faith, Abraham's grandson was a man by the name of Jacob, and God called Jacob Israel. So God wanted to call him Israel. So we need to understand when we see Israel, it could be talking about Jacob, the person. But that's not it. Israel also would deal with the nation or national Israel, also known in the Bible as Jews and Hebrews, all right? So we see that when we hear the name Israel, that it could be referring to ethnicity. It could be referring to a tribe of people. And then lastly, when we see Israel mentioned in the Scripture, Israel refers to the covenant people of God who hold that position by faith. I don't know if you can trace your lineage back to uh, what country you came from. It's amazing to me. I've, I've lived in Sheboygan for almost three years now, and everybody knows who their great-great-great-great-grandfathers were, and they sailed over on the Mayflower, and they know that. And, and it blows me away how connected to um, your lineage most of you are, especially if you come from a real strong Dutch background or German background. You hear a lot of people can trace that heritage. I don't know what in the world I am. I I just know that I burn easy outside, and I know that I'm really light-skinned, um, and I know that I must have some type of Irish or, or Scottish heritage. My, name, my last name is Armstrong, I, you know, and, I, and I could picture myself you know, in, in a kilt with a sword you know, and blue face paint on. Don't picture me in a kilt. That'll mess the sermon up, okay? But 
I could picture myself, you know, uh, being related to maybe Scottish, Irish, I don't know. But regardless, um, I know that because I am in Christ and because I'm a follower of Jesus, that I am a part of this covenant Israel. It's a position that's held by faith. You see, and when Paul talks about Israel in that instance, then he's meaning more the church. He's talking about you and I as a covenant people of God. That's why Galatians 3.29 says that if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. In other words, you're a part of something you naturally could never have been a part of. You know, no matter how great I think your family history is, I could never work hard enough to be a part of that bloodline. I couldn't. You know, I think that you got some great German heritage. You know, I could eat all the bratwurst I wanted, and I would never be a part of that bloodline, right? I would never, there's nothing I could do to earn being a part of that. But yet, we we, we, we don't earn that position with God, rather we receive it by faith in Jesus, amen? And so now we're a part of the bloodline or the promise, the covenant promise of Covenant Israel, that position that's held by faith, because God has always been in the faith business. Always. Amen? Ever since the beginning of time. This is the way to God. The Bible says Abraham was justified by faith. Now, I think that's one of the craziest scriptures in the Bible. Abraham was justified by faith. How in the world was Abraham made just in the eyes of God? Abraham was living in a fallen world. He was a fallen being. He was, a part, he was under this curse that came with the fall of mankind, the, that sin that leads to death. But Jesus had not come, and Jesus had not died for his sins yet. And also, the law had not even been given. You see, Abraham lived before Moses' time, before the Ten Commandments were ever given. But the Bible says that Abraham was justified by faith. So that means that God's system of justification has never been the law. It's always been by faith. The Bible says this. It says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham believed God when he spoke. Therefore, God credited it to him to righteousness. Jesus came and paid the bill. Amen? But it was credited to Abraham because of faith. And so God has always used faith as a way to be justified. That has always been God's system. It's not like God came up with this new system when Jesus came on the scene. No, that was, that, that was how when we see Jesus talking uh, and during the transfiguration, we see that there's two figures up there that were believed to be Elijah and that were believed to be Moses, you know, talking with Jesus. Well, Jesus had not come to die for them yet, so how in the world were they justified? They were justified by faith. When we talk about uh, justification uh, in, the, in the eyes of, of, of God through David, David, who was a man after God's own heart, how was he made right in the eyes of God? How was he justified? How did God fellowship with him? By faith. He trusted God. He grew in his trust with God. And that's still today how we are a part of God's family because Jesus has come and he has paid it all. Amen? So... Uh, the second thing is that when we talk about chapter 9, that's really the strongest text for the sovereignty of God, and chapter 10 is the strongest text for the free will of man. We'll talk a little bit about both of those. Chapter 9 and 30 through 33 is a summary of chapter 9 and the theme of chapter 10, and then chapter 11 continues the paradox between God's sovereignty, man's free will, and how national Israel had received God's promises, but they still chose to reject him. So with that being said, let's go to the book of Romans, and let's look at the ninth chapter. Romans Chapter 9, and we'll look at verse 1. 
Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ that I'm not lying. My conscience also bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed of God. Amen. So we see here that Paul leads off by talking about national Israel and how he's broken for them. He's talking about his countrymen. He's talking about those that are his relatives. Because remember, Paul is a Jewish man. He's broken because these people should have seen the truth. You see, through the Jewish people came the Torah, came the Old Testament, came the teachings and, and the prophecies that were supposed to point to Jesus Christ as the Savior. If anybody was to understand prophecy, if anybody was to understand when the Messiah came, it should have been the national born. Israelites, the Jewish people. They should have been like, oh, whoop, there he is. Right? That's what they should have said. They should have, oh, there he is. There's Jesus. Oh, I get it. Because they had all of the Old Testament prophecies. They had all these words that should have magnified who Jesus was when he came on the scene. But because Jesus did not come the way they wanted him to come, they rejected him. Matter of fact, they ended up crucifying him. They called him all sorts of names. You know, they said he was blaspheming. They said that he was, you know, mocking God. All of these things that they accused Jesus of. They just didn't like the way that he came. They thought he was supposed to do certain things that they had expected through their perspective, through their lenses. And because they missed Christ, we see that Christ was also offered not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those unbelieving people, the people who didn't grow up in that Jewish heritage, people who would uh, have been worshiping maybe pagan idols during that day. The Romans would have been considered Gentiles. And now Christ has come to the Gentiles. But he said, my heart is breaking. He said, I'm grieved over this. He said, I'm a great sorrow. I'm in a great sorrow over this. He said, I wish that I, would, I could trade places with the nation of Israel and, and I could let them see Christ and that you know, I, I, would, I would be willing to do whatever I could so that they could have Christ. He said, because they should have got it. They should have understood it. But they didn't understand it. They, they missed it. You see, the Jews believed that righteousness was earned through the law. They thought that they could be right with God by how well they performed. That God is working off of a merits-based system. That somehow, if I do enough good deeds and I, and I adhere to the law, that God is going to look on me with favor. He's going to welcome me into heaven. I'm going to be right in his eyes. And that's how the Jewish people looked at their redemption, looked at reconciliation with God, was through their adherence to the law. But here Paul is saying, no, they should have understood that it's by faith. It's always been by faith. It's always been by trusting in the finished work of Christ. So they missed that, and Paul is broken over it. Let's keep reading here in verse 6. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now that we have kind of explained who Israel is, that makes a little bit more sense, because it sounds like he's a little delirious there, maybe talking a little schizophrenic. They're not Israel who are Israel. Whoa, 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 Paul, hang on just a second. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you ate for you know, supper last night. Maybe you had some bad pizza or something. I don't know. But uh, they're not Israel who are all Israel. We understand what he's saying now. We're understanding that just because they can claim Israel as their heritage and they can say, I am a Jew by blood, 
that doesn't mean that I'm a part of the covenant people of God who hold that position by faith. In other words, he's saying they're not all children of God just because they can claim their heritage goes back a certain way. So, in other words, it has created an entitlement mentality in the nation of Israel. They feel very entitled to their position with God because they can trace their heritage all the way back to Abraham, who is the father of faith. They go, well, hey, I can trace all my, my, my heritage, my ancestors, my great, 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 grandfather was Abraham. And they think that they're right in the eyes of God just simply because of an entitled blood heritage. And Paul's saying, no, they, they, they can't. They're missing the point. But just because they're of Israel, just because they can go all the way back to Jacob, doesn't mean that they're a part of the covenant people of God because that can only come through faith. Nor are they all children, verse 7, because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is who are the children of the flesh. These are not children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Children who are of the promise. How do we receive the promise? By faith. Amen? It's by faith we're justified. That's what Paul said in Romans 1 and 17. He said, the just shall live by faith. Faith being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that we trust that what Christ did for you and for me paid the penalty for our sin, for the violation against God, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus came and made us right with God. So trusting in Him and putting our faith in Him is what makes us right with God, not that entitlement. Now, could you imagine being a Jewish person reading this letter? Man, you'd be pretty hot at this moment right now. Because you have put all your stock in the fact that you're a Jew, right? You put all the stock in the fact that you can trace your heritage all the way back to Jacob, all the way back to Abraham, and you're going, whoa, 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 hang on just a second, Paul. I don't think so. We are children of Jacob. We are children of Abraham. We can trace our lineage all the way back. And you're telling us that that does not make us right in the eyes of God? And Paul is saying, no. He said, just because you're of Israel doesn't mean you're Israel. You get it? Just because you're of that lineage doesn't mean you hold that position by faith. So he's really causing a ruckus with some of his statements here. What he's trying to tell them is that salvation is not earned through obedience to the law. Salvation is not passed down as an entitlement because of ethnicity. It is received only by faith in Jesus. And folks, I think that a lot of times that entitlement mentality seeps over into our lives as Christians. If we're not careful, if we're not on guard against our true need for Christ and we don't remind ourselves of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, we can become quickly pious and prideful thinking that we have somehow become entitled to this. I, even if you have children who have been raised up maybe in a Christian home. I, I remember my home was one of, you know, the Christian TV was always on. We're at the church every time the doors are open. Christian music's always playing in the car. And I remember growing up feeling entitled like, you know, I had somehow been grandfathered in to this whole Christianity thing. That's not how it works. Each individual person has to make a decision. You're not grandfathered in or entitled. It's something you have to receive by faith. Amen? That's how, that's, that's how it comes. It comes through believing in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, not through our works, not through our ethnicity, not through our uh, entitlement mentality. No, it only comes through faith in Christ. So let's keep on reading there in verse 9. 
For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall conceive a son, and not only this, but when Rebekah has conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, working to according to election, might stand, not of works, of him who calls. And it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So we see here that Paul is referring... Uh, to Jacob and Esau. He's talking about Jacob or Israel. And he's talking about his twin brother Esau. Now Esau was born first out of the twins. And here God is saying, listen, I chose Jacob before he ever came on the scene. He said, I, I predestined him, I elected him to carry forth the promised Messiah to be that nation of Israel, that promised seed that I promised to his grandfather Abraham. He said, I chose him, I elected him, I called him. And it was nothing he did. There was nothing that Jacob did. It wasn't like him and Esau were in the womb together and you know, Esau punches him in the womb and God goes, oh, you're a pretty mean, violent little you know, baby in the womb, so you know, I reject you. You shouldn't have been such a jerk in your mama's belly. I mean, that's not what he was saying at all. He was saying, listen, I chose him before they ever had the opportunity to do good or evil. He said, I, I chose Jacob. And then he was referring here to uh, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, where he's actually referring in a national sense. The nation that came from Esau's lineage were the Edomites, and they were oppressing Israel, uh, the Israelites who were you know, of the lineage of Jacob. And so he was given the contrast there. And Paul was not necessarily referencing the individual man. Uh, now, listen, it's not because of works that God chose Jacob to reveal his promise because God chose him before he was ever born. And then he reveals to us a really crazy kingdom principle here. He said that the younger is going to actually not be the servant of the older, but the older is going to serve the younger. Very contrast to traditional Jewish upbringing, because it was always the firstborn. And maybe it's that way in your house too, the firstborn. You're special, you know, and, and I was the firstborn in, in my house, and I'm special, you know, because I was the first, the first child. You know, the ones that had the halo around their head, oh, you know, it's that firstborn child. That was me, and that was Esau, firstborn. But God told their mother, he said, listen, the younger is not going to serve the older it's actually going to be the other way around. And God is establishing kingdom principle here that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he's actually showing us here that even though Jacob was the second born, that Esau was actually going to uh, serve him there. So we can see that God is faithful. And we can see that it only comes through the fact that God actually chose to do what he did through Jacob. You see, the Jews believed and still believe that just because they're connected to that lineage or that bloodline, that that makes them right. And if that were the case, then Abraham's son that he had with a slave girl that was named Ishmael, that, that, that child would have been saved, as would all of his descendants. And you and I, would, we would be out of hope. We would be out of luck because unless you're a natural-born Jew... You see, God was trying to establish something, and he was trying to show the value system of heaven is not a value system of hierarchy. It's not a value system of age. It's not a value system of rank, but rather it's a value system of calling. It's a value system of calling. Let's keep on reading Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. It says, what are we going to say then? Paul knows what everybody's thinking, so let's go ahead and talk about it. He says, what are we going to say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? 
In other words, is this fair? He says, certainly not. God's not unrighteous. You see, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Now we see something, that God is interested in his glory and his name. That's the very purpose for which you and I were created, not just to float around in this life until we pass away, but no, our purpose is to bring glory to God. And he said, listen, I'm interested in my name being declared in the earth. I'm interested in my glory. Let's keep on reading. He's talking about Pharaoh here, uh, the Pharaoh who dealt with Moses back in the book of Exodus. Verse 17 For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he said also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You're not my people, there they shall be called the sons of God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would become like Sodom and we would be made like Gomorrah. What are we going to say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness? even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. For as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul's really addressing here what everybody's thinking. He's going, well, that doesn't sound very fair. That's what he's addressing. And that's why he goes on to say, listen, God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. And listen, He is the standard for both, right? Love is just not something that God does. It's who He is. The Bible says God is love, correct? If God is love and God is mercy, then He is the standard for both. So that this is where trust comes into play, that God is who He says He is. Because He either is who He says He is or He's not. We have to make that decision. Is he who he says he is? So if he's the standard for both, and here he offers no explanation for his choice of one brother over the other to carry the seed of the promise, though so knowing that God will not violate his nature, we must trust in the sovereignty of God that his mercy and love navigates that choice. And we need to remember that the end of man, the chief end of man, is not that we're happy, healthy, and wealthy. It's that God is glorified. Amen? That's our purpose, is that God is glorified. He wants His name to be glorified through our lives. And so Paul is saying, listen, we need to understand that He's the potter, 
And that just because he chose Jacob and just because these things have happened this way, he says, doesn't mean that he's unjust. It doesn't mean that he's unloving. He cannot violate his nature because we cannot rationalize in our own human value system those things of God. Who is going to know the thoughts of God? Who's going to understand his purposes and his will for every single thing that he does? So we need to trust that God is who he says he is. And when there are those things that happen in life, when those decisions are made, like the choosing of Jacob, we have to trust that God in his sovereignty and his love and in his mercy created him for that purpose. Let's keep on reading in Romans 10 and verse 1. It'll help make some of this uh, clear up a little bit here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer uh, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So he's praying for them. Paul is praying for his, his brethren to be saved, the Israelites. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness, which is the law. The man, who, um, the man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from heaven, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. And if you confess with your mouth the, 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 the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, here we see that righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then in verse 12 he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember earlier we talked about how chapter 10 is the strongest text for the free will of man. Just as we see that chapter 9 is the strongest text for the sovereignty of God. In other words, we see that God is sovereign. Yes, he is all-knowing. Yes, he is sovereign. But there is still a responsibility and a choice that you and I have to make. Amen? We have to choose him. Just as in the Garden of Eden, as we read in the book of Genesis, God set in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, along with all of his uh, wonderful blessings that he had given. And mankind had a choice. And he is trying to tell Israel that even though you've been in this bloodline, even though you've been a part of this, you need to understand that it's still a choice that you need to make by faith. I'm wanting you to call out on the name of the Lord instead of trusting in your works, instead of trusting in how good or bad you are, instead of trusting in what you are trying to do to achieve salvation instead rest and trust in the finished work of the cross he's trying to explain to them that this is something they need to do that it's not something that's just going to happen just because they're sucking air and can say i'm a jew it's something that they have to make a conscious choice because they realize their need for christ and therefore they call upon him that's their responsibility and then they shall be saved. And that's what Paul is praying that they do because they're not getting it. And it's a breaking his heart. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand here today. Um, Romans 10, let's pick it up at verse 14. So how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. 
But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not all heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold, and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We see here that God is continually stretching out his hand in mercy to a people who constantly reject him. He's constantly stretching out his hand in mercy, and he was hoping to provoke them to jealousy by making salvation available, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, so that they would see that it's not just about their heritage and their lineage, and it's not about this entitlement thing, but they would see that others who cannot claim Abraham as their great-great-great-great-grandfather are now a part of this covenant promise. And he's saying, listen, I'm wanting them to see that they they weren't even asking for him. They weren't even looking for him. That's what Isaiah was saying. It wasn't like they even saw their need for a savior. They were busy worshiping their false idols or they were busy living for themselves with a godless mindset, just thinking that they could just float through life and the end of their life was to just try to accumulate happiness and, and joy in things or whatever the case may be. And they're living their lives completely contrary to the statutes of God. They weren't even seeking God. And God says, I made myself a available to them and they found me they weren't even looking for me and they said wow i didn't even realize i had this need and then it changes their life and now they can understand that they are made right with god and now they're grafted in to this family of god they're grafted into this vine they're grafted in made a part of something naturally they could not have been made a part of they couldn't have forced themselves to somehow become jews they couldn't have somehow forced themselves to become israel but now because of faith in christ they've been grafted in the vine and the purpose paul was saying of that was hoping that they would go oh man this is breaking me i can see that it's not about my lineage i can see it's not about my heritage but it's about faith in god And he's trying to get them to understand that. And so here we see that God is rich in mercy. And he said here in verse 21 that all day long, God says, I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient people. All day long, God has not quit. He's not given up. He's not stopping, stretching out his hand in mercy. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Amen, church? You see, God has not given up on Israel, and God has not given up on you. He's not given up on your loved ones. He's not given up on your friends. God has not given up on those that may be distant from you, but God is rich in mercy and his mercy continually calls so that man would choose him. But people are rejecting God more and more. Wouldn't you agree? Our world is becoming more increasingly anti-Christ. It's not that the world is against religion as much as they're against Jesus. You know, because everybody else is okay, but when you mention Jesus, all of a sudden people get all upset and get panicky and, oh, well, I mean, I mean, (laughs) Hang on just a second. I mean, can't we talk about something else? You see, the world is becoming increasingly anti-Christ, but God in His richness and His mercy, what does He still continue to do? He still continues to call people. He still continues to raise up people who are preaching the gospel. He still calls you and I, who He's given the ministry of reconciliation, to go out into all the world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That He is full of love, mercy, and forgiveness. That He wants to welcome you regardless of what you've done. That while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He chose you. He wants you. He's beckoning you. He's calling you to come and to receive His Son by faith. But here's the thing. When we see 
that God is still doing that, when we see God is still raising up people, still sending people, still commissioning people, that message gives us hope because we know that it's not over. Amen? Amen? We know it's not over. We know that God's not saying, oh, well, done with these people. They're rejecting me one too many times. No, Paul says, no, he hasn't given up. He's still continually stretching out his hand. Romans chapter 11, verse 1 says, So I say then, as God cast away his people, has God given up on Israel? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with the God of Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Well, what does the divine response say to him? says, I've reserved for myself even a thousand, 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But, it, but if it is of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block of recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and they bow down their back always. We see here that he's explaining that Israel's rejection of God is not final, that that's not the end, that that's not it for them. He talks about this remnant. This is where we don't really know if Paul is referring to Israel in the national sense, if he's talking about the nation, or if he's talking about Israel in the covenant promise sense, or both. This is really a hard passage of Scripture to understand. So what I'll ask us to do as we continue to read is not to be divisive over that portion, because it is more difficult to understand since it's not clear, but let's look to see what we can glean to apply to our walk as believers. Let's keep on reading here in verse 11. So I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is the riches of this world and the failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And if by any means I may provoke jealousy to those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. You see, God is saying he hasn't disowned Israel because he's rich in mercy. He's speaking from his personal feelings here where he hopes that some Jews are going to be jealous because of the Gentiles and they will want to be a part of that promise, that promise that was made to Abraham. And it's something that you and I are a part of because of faith in Jesus. That's what Galatians 3 and 29 says. It says, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed and you're heirs according to the promise. Amen? That's what Galatians 3 and 29 says. If we belong to Christ, then we are in that heritage. We are Abraham's seed. What seed? Is he talking about the natural seed? No, he's talking about the seed by faith. Let's keep on reading. Verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So don't boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember, you don't support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Don't be haughty in that, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity. But towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. 
And they also, if they don't continue in, in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. There's the mercy of God towards Israel. If they believe, if they have faith, God will graft them in again, is what he said in verse 23. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are of natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, and through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. We see here that Paul doesn't want the Gentiles to become haughty towards the Jews because they're now a part of God's family. He's trying to give them perspective and say, listen, just because you guys realize something, you need to recognize that you received mercy for your unbelief. Now you need to be conduits of mercy that you give towards those who are unbelieving. What he's saying here is that mercy triumphs over judgment because mercy is what we're called to give to those who don't believe. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And today, my prayer through this whole message, and I know this has been a lot of reading. We're reading a lot of scriptures, a lot more than we normally read. And I know some of it may be hard to, hard to understand, and, 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 and there's a lot more to it that we could take out time for. But the overarching theme that I want to communicate to you today is that mercy triumphs over judgment, and mercy is what you and I have been given. Amen? We did not get what we deserve. We did not get what we earned. We got instead mercy. We got forgiveness instead of judgment. We got welcomed into the family of God instead of rejected from God because we had faith in Jesus Christ. And because we have been given mercy, what are we called to give? Mercy. You and I have received forgiveness, so what are we called to give? Forgiveness. You and I have received grace, so what are we called to give? Grace. You and I have received truth, so what are we called to give? Truth. It's not that it all stops with us and we just tank it up and become proudful in our knowledge. No, we are called to be conduits of the glory of God so others will see His goodness and they will turn to Him. That's what you and I are called to do. This is the message of reconciliation. If it just stops with us and we make it all about us, we're missing the point and we're just like the haughty Jewish people of Paul's day when he was writing to them in Rome. And they thought that they had it all together. They thought they were all that and they missed the whole point. It's not that we're justified because we've tanked up all this goodness for ourselves. No, we're justified by faith and we just let God, whatever he gives to us, we just let it just pour out of us. So if that's love, if that's mercy, if that's forgiveness, if that's truth, whatever the case may be, it flows out of us because we are recipients of it. The Bible also says we're stewards of it. You and I have a responsibility to be stewards of the things that God has given us. So if we're forgiven in the eyes of God, then we need to be stewards of that kind of grace. Amen? We need to be not only people who freely receive, but what did Jesus said? Freely you have received, so freely give. Amen? 
You see, we're called to give to those who don't believe. So today, I pray God shows you how deep his mercy is so we can receive that mercy and we can give that mercy. Let us not think any higher of ourselves than we ought to because it is, had it not been for God saving us, where would we be? I mean, it's not our works that save us. It's not our heritage. It's not any type of sense of entitlement that we may feel that makes us better than anyone because we're not. You see, it's only by faith have we received right standing with God. It's only by faith we've received grace. And even that faith is a gift from God. It should humble us, and it should birth a passion in our hearts to serve the Lord for the sake of spreading the gospel and showing mercy to those who, not, who don't believe. So right after the end of chapter 11, we're going to get into chapter 12 next week, and here's how he kicks off chapter 12, the very first verse that he says. He says, And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's your reasonable act of service. The very next thing he says after just spilling his heart about mercy towards the unbelieving Israelites, spilling out his heart towards mercy towards those who have rejected God, the very next thing he says, because you've received this mercy, I'm beseeching you on behalf of that mercy to commit your life as not your own, but you're being that living sacrifice, living for a purpose greater than your own will, your own self, and you're serving God, and you're showing, being that conduit of His goodness and His mercy, that you'll prove how good He is. You'll show the world how awesome He is. You'll show the world how rich His love and mercy is because you are demonstrating that to the unbelieving world. So here's just a few things practically that we can apply from this that you can take away from this. The first thing is don't give up on people. Don't give up on people. Keep showing them mercy and truth, especially when they don't deserve it. Amen? It's easy to give people mercy when we think that they deserve it or we feel sorry for them. Those are the easy people to feel sorry for. I mean, we've all seen those infomercials, you know, with Sarah McLaughlin. And we go, oh, it makes us cry, and we want to write a check, and we'll have mercy and compassion because we were moved emotionally. That's easy. What about when it comes to someone that it's not quite as easy to show mercy and compassion on? Someone that you think you would say something like, well, they're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get what they deserve. But instead of giving them what they deserve, you give them mercy? Hmm. Sounds a little bit what Jesus did for you and me. Sounds a little bit what Paul was trying to get the Israelites to understand. Listen, it's not about entitlement. It's about us giving mercy even to those who are unbelieving, even those who may not see eye to eye with us or agree with us. It's not about everybody becoming like me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so you know what? I, we just got to keep loving on people and showing them the truth. That's what's going to point people to Jesus. Amen? That's what's going to point them to Jesus. Love and truth. Be consistent and show them things. Give them things even, even when they don't deserve it. Just like I gave the story of me giving that guy a big tip at the restaurant. Man, he didn't deserve that tip. And I don't know if it changed anything on his day. I don't know. But I imagine he got a lot of nasty notes that day. I imagine he probably got a, pe a lot of people that didn't tip him that day. But he knows there was somebody who showed him a little bit of compassion and mercy. And that can change your life. When we show compassion and mercy to other people, man, can't that change someone's life? Especially when you, when you show mercy and compassion with no strings attached. Like you're not showing mercy for what you can get out of the deal. You know, because I think a lot of times people look at the church and and, and, and they always wonder, you know, well, what are they doing? I remember one time when I was a pastor of a church in Arkansas, we decided to go mow some people's lawns in the neighborhood. And we didn't advertise our church. We didn't tell them what time our church started, nothing like that. We just want to go bless people. 
in this neighborhood that obviously needed some yard mowed. <laughs> and so, <laughs> it was just, I mean, they needed the yards mowed, you know. We found cars under the, no, I'm kidding, it wasn't that bad. <clears throat> that was a joke, I kid, I kid. But, uh, but anyways, we, we went and mowed the yards, and people said, well, here, let me give you a donation. And we're like, we're not taking donations. Well, we're just doing this because we just want you to know that, you know, God loves you, and we love God, and so because we love God, we know He loves you, and we want to show you that. This is how we show that. We wouldn't take donations. I remember even uh, just this past summer when we did a softball uh, game, and we did a brat fry out there, and we were just going out giving brats to people, and people were trying to give us money. Because, see, I think sometimes people always think that Christians always are out there with their hand out looking for money, you know, for good deeds that they do. And that's not the case, is it, folks? So in order to let them see true mercy, I bless somebody without any strings attached, especially when someone doesn't deserve it. That's showing the love of Christ. Second thing, remember, you're an ambassador for Christ. You're a messenger of mercy. That's what 2 Corinthians uh, 5 and 17 through 21 says. We always quote 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you know, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But then he goes on and he says, and you have been reconciled unto God, and now you've received the ministry of reconciliation. So he says, not only are you new, but you have a new purpose. Your purpose is now to share the message of the gospel, to be a minister of reconciliation. And we do that in our everyday lives. Number three, God has a remnant. You're not alone in your purpose and your mission here on earth. Don't allow the enemy to make you feel isolated. You have a family of believers in Jesus, your church family. We're here to pray for you. We're here to help you to be sharpened. I think that the, the, the worst deception that the enemy has is that he wants you to feel like you're all alone. Whether you're struggling with something, whether you are uh, uh, stepping out in faith on something, the biggest thing he wants to attack you, and you're the only one doing this, you know, and you feel all alone, and you feel like God has somehow abandoned you, you're the only one standing in faith, you're the only one believing God, you're the only one trusting, you're the only one, you're the only one. You're not. You're not. That's why we have church, because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, forsake not uh, the gathering of yourselves, the assembling of yourselves together. He says, especially as you see the day of the Lord approaching. That's why we need each other. Iron sharpens iron. So does one man's countenance sharpen another. Amen? That's why we have community groups here at Word of Grace, because we want to get people connected and plugged in. That's why we do even things like football. We just want to connect relationally, because we know there's no way we're going to be able to go deeper in life together and do life together that's going to glorify God if, if we don't have relationship. So we need that. You're not alone. If you feel alone, you are not alone. You need to understand that. You are not alone. God always has a remnant. And the fourth thing is that we need to grow in Romans 10, and 10 verse 9 and 10. I think that a lot of times when we hear Romans 10, 9 and 10, we, we think that that's just a one-time event. Oh, I said a prayer that a preacher told me to pray, and I accepted Jesus into my heart, and I've already done that. I've already done Romans 10, 9, and 10. No, I, I don't think that's what Paul was saying. I think Paul was saying, listen, Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a lifestyle. Because the more I believe in my heart, the more that I trust in Jesus, guess what? Out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth is going to speak. Amen? And so confession is made. I'm going to speak more about Jesus. So I need to grow in my trust in Him. And the more that trust is strengthened, the more it should come out of my mouth. Amen? So I think Romans 10, 9, and 10, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth is something we grow in. I think it's something that, sure, we do initially when we come to our, our saving faith in Christ. But I don't think it stops there. I think it's something you and I are called to grow in. So we grow in that by strengthening 
that hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how faith comes. Remember Romans 10 and 17. And then we share how good God is to us. That's how the world is going to know. That's how we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. So don't forget these things this week. And I would challenge you, encourage you maybe to go back and, and, and read through those scriptures. I know we kind of went through them fast and we read a lot of stuff. I didn't get to preach last week, so i got to get all this out. <laughs> Pastor Andy did a great job, but I got, I, I got like, you know, two weeks worth in here. And it's, it's got to come out. So thanks for hanging out. I know we went a little longer than we normally do. And before we go, we're going to receive communion. And I want the ushers, if you guys would go ahead and get ready. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.